Today's guest is Jay Giroux of Damon, which is a motorcycle company building the future of motorcycles. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we know, motorcycles come in all shapes and sizes. However, they are fundamentally still gas-driven. This is an electric motorcycle. Many have attempted this feat, and yet very few have accomplished what they set out to do. What makes Damon different is not only the leadership of Jay at the helm, who has had two other electric companies that he had started, electric automotive companies, and underwent all the trials and tribulations with those companies already, uh, while also securing uh, government contracts of the highest level. Then you add to the fact that before he even did any of that, he had a career in extreme sports as a snowboarder. And you're looking at a vision coming together of someone who is now at the helm of what we know as Damon, which is building the future of motorcycles. Does that sentence land a little differently now? This is truly one of those conversations you're going to wish you had heard if you're in entrepreneurship, if you're in tech, and if you're into motorcycles. So without further ado, Jay Giroux of Damon. Um, I want to thank you for stopping by. And I was just wondering if you could just backtrack a little for any, uh, in the event that anyone's listening to you and about you for the first time, if you can just give a primer for, you know, sort of a little bit of your background and, and uh, what you're doing with Damon Motors. Uh, just like how you got there today before we jump into the deeper next levels and next sure. steps for Damon. Yeah, so my name is Jay Giroux and I'm the founder and CEO at Damon Motors. And Damon is the future of motorcycling. Uh, and, you know, there have been a, a number of companies over the, the recent decade or so that have started up uh, creating, you know, a new kind of motorcycle, whether that's electric being the new kind part of it or or, you know, scooter sharing companies and, and e-bikes and, and all of these new bendangled ways of getting around on less than four wheels. You've probably seen those crazy guys that do 60 miles an hour on unicycles. Okay, none of that is us. We are, um, I hate saying it this way, but if, if, you aren't, if you aren't looking up Damon Motors on the internet right now, we're like the Ducati of electric motorcycles. Um, except our bikes are more powerful and faster than Ducatis. Um, and uh, and then the top of the line Ducati, for that matter. Uh, in fact, they not only are they faster and more powerful, but they go twice as far uh, per charge. They can DC fast charge on Tesla superchargers in 20 minutes. Uh, they have the world's only collision warning system capable of warning you a threat from all sides in a very novel way. <clears throat> and they transform at the push of a button from a sport bike riding position into a commuter riding position uh, electronically while in motion. So it really is like, and then it's got a seven inch touchscreen display, shows you everything behind you while you ride. You can unlock the forward camera to stream to the cloud. You know, there's just a whole bunch of cool things that take you well beyond what any motorcycle does today. And so for us, that is sort of what the future of motorcycling is and what it means, redefining a whole new riding experience for, uh, for commuters and recreational riders. I mean, this is just such a great opportunity for Anyone who has been clamoring at other companies to step up to this, was this always the vision for Damon or to, to make this product in particular? Or what was the story like there, especially yeah, when no, you came all. in? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I've done a, a series of, of automotive startups that we'll talk about in a bit, I guess. Um, but Damon, Damon was founded, uh, the genesis for Damon was a time I spent in Jakarta 
Indonesia, which is a city of, you know, the outskirts inclusive. It's like 30 million people or something. And, and literally 19 out of 20 people ride a scooter or a motorbike to get from A to B. And uh, I was there for my best friend's wedding. Um, and I was really excited to ride a motorbike finally among nothing but motorcyclists that I've been riding my whole life. Knowing that they ride small motorbikes, not like the kind of things we ride here, but still just wanting to be among so many riders who, who live and breathe it. And, um, and it was anything but, well, it was kind of fun still, but it was, it was pretty crazy, you know, the absence of rules on the road. And uh, eventually I had a little accident. Um, I was okay. And then later that uh, night, after seven hours of riding, I nearly drowned in the ocean. Um, I got pulled out by a riptide and my best friend, the day after his wedding, had to swim out and, and dig me out. And thankfully, he's a surfer and a lifeguard. So he, he saved me. Um, and uh, so that was good. But for the next few days of my trip there, I spent a lot of time thinking about the needs and the well-being of the average Indonesian person, seeing you know, them in an entirely new way than merely being you know, a low middle class developing nation type of people, which is definitely, unfortunately, how people over here tend to think about people over there. Um, and thinking that they're reckless and crazy for putting their family of five on a scooter. First of all, that rarely happens, except in small villages. And second of all, when they do it, it's because they have to. There's no alternative. The same reason when they buy a motorcycle or a scooter that's quote unquote unsafe with no safety systems that you would find in a car. It's because they have to, because there's no alternative. They don't ride a bicycle and they don't walk on the sidewalks because they're crowded with motorcycles, literally on the sidewalks. Because um, it's so crowded. So, you know, I, my, I had a bit of an attitude adjustment, you could say. And, and I spent the, next, the rest of the time thinking about how interestingly all of these motorcycle riders move like a flock of birds. And I thought, what if there was a way to use technology to make all of the motorcycles self-govern you know, such that they moved like a flock of birds and never, never crashed into each other? And of course, I had to work my way all the way back to reality, um, that maybe that's a distant 50-year-away future. And, and thought, like, okay, how do we actually just make motorcycles safer? And so that was kind of the beginning of the, of the thought. This is, there's actually an origin story. You know, sometimes people create a business. Oh, well, there just, always is an origin story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, for good entrepreneurs. So if there's one thing I've noticed is that there is a difference. There are some people who just go, how do we make money? You know, and there's nothing oh, wow. wrong with that. You know what I mean? And I have interviewed enough companies to know that they were just, all about the Benjamins, if you will, right? Which again, you need that to run a sustaining, a sustainable business, right? You need to have your eye on the bottom line. That's you can't ignore that. Any entrepreneur would agree with you there. What I find awesome though is that you, as any good entrepreneur does, right, takes what life sent your way and then does this alchemical process of then creating something from it. And I think those are usually the best companies. And as you can see, mm. there's something brewing here. There, there, was a, there was a direct correlation to the world itself and what you wanted to do with that, right, as a company. And so now you mentioned you had been working at many automotive companies or, or in that space in general, in that vertical. How did you get into this space to begin with? Like, where, is the, where does that love start for you? Is, have you always just been fascinated by cars growing up with Honda? Yeah. Exactly. Um, Oh boy, it's such a big question. Um, <clears throat> trying to decide where to cut off and begin. <laughs> um, so in 2003, at the end of my, um, at the end of, I was, I was unknowingly at the end of my snowboarding career in 2003, living in, in Whistler, BC. And I was working at a bar 
And I was doing a day shift because I had just literally destroyed my back about two weeks before. Um, and so I was doing a day shift, which was unusual for me. And on that day shift, I, I was watching the bombing of Baghdad during the Iraq war. And, uh, it was, you know, CNN was all over the screens before the bar opened and uh, we were setting up the bar. And, uh, and I was just so blown away that that was happening in front of my eyes. I was like 26 at the time. And, um, and so I, I spent a lot bunch of time then, and I had a lot of time, so I wasn't going up the mountain anymore, thinking about how do you get the world off oil? Because my conclusion was, no matter what anybody says, it was about oil. And, um, you know, chasing down Saddam Hussein and all that stuff back then. Um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, right or wrong, whatever. And, uh, and so by 2008, I concluded that I was going to spend, that my mission in life was to help get the world off oil. So I spent five years between 03 and 08 trying to figure out you know, what are, the, what are the biggest leverage points one could have on the world's consumption of oil? And I'm, I'm always convinced it's never a technology question. The answer isn't technology. The answer is changing human behavior. And so if, you, if you're going to change human behavior, you're going to have to change as many people as possible. So what's the one thing people use that consumes more oil per person than anything else? <clears throat> the answer is a car. Yeah. It's pretty clear. It's a car. Okay, so that's, that means we have to figure out a better fuel source for cars. So I looked at all of the myriad spectrums of fuel sources, and I came to the conclusion that electric was the way of the future in 2007. And in 08, I started an electric vehicle company making SUVs and pickup trucks that were electric. And we sold them to U.S. utility companies and municipalities and the DOD and the Pentagon. And we had big military contractors like Honeywell Aerospace and SAIC. And it was great fun. It was extremely hard. Um, and five years later, we had to pivot because um, natural gas prices fell so hard that our fleet customers, which was our target audience, pivoted away from electric in 08 and back towards natural gas, or pardon me, in 2012. In 2012, natural gas got so cheap that they wanted to go back to natural gas fleet conversions instead of our electric vehicle fleet conversions. So I had to pivot the company and I created a second company called Mogio based on an idea I had inside of Rev. And Mojo became one of the largest connected car platforms for consumers in the world. And so today, you know, I ran Mojo for five years and we amassed major um, world-class partners like all of the wireless carriers in North America and Europe, connected millions of cars. Um, that was it's a great company still running today. Uh, and that led me all the way to 2016. You know, what's crazy about that is it sounded, and correct me if I'm wrong, like you did such a great job getting people where you wanted to, that it created macro uh, difficulties <laughs> in, in the industry yeah, itself. Exactly. And we're to the point where we were like, well, it's kind of, a, it's kind of gas is getting too cheap or what have you. Um, and so- It definitely wasn't, wasn't me that made natural gas cheap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't okay. know what caused it to get cheap, but it fell really it just happened. It just happened to happen at the same time. Got it. Oh man, that must've been difficult to experience, especially when your mission was to make, that happened, but you didn't want to destabilize anything. That was ne that's never been. Yeah, your well, I mean, natural gas and oil are separate, you know, technically speaking. But you can hear my ignorance speaking about this industry. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, right? Like, I may not be the only one. I, I mean, you know, I'd like to totally. feel better about myself thinking that, but uh, <laughs> but there's also the possibility that there are many people who are seeing that. And then you have now, from what I understand, there there have always been the group of people, visionaries, uh, early adopters. And, and people who are innovators in spaces that have always appreciated newer technologies, right? And supported newer technologies and bringing them in. And so when we talk about Damon itself and, and what it stands for and what it's trying to accomplish with your 
mission on that fateful day when you were looking at what was happening, right? How has the response been from that community of what Damon has been doing as, as yeah. a production? So I'll, I'll backfill a little piece there before we answer that question. So, um, so in 2016, after Rev, after Mojio, um, you know, there I was in Jakarta and all of that, um, had the little accident, thought about flocks of birds and, and then thought about, um, you know, how do we make a motorcycle safer today? And the conclusion we came to as a, as a pre viable answer was to make helmets safer and smarter with heads up display information. Long story short, that's a bad idea. Um, it's very difficult to do that in a way that makes the helmet that keeps the integrity of the helmet as is light, safe, um, and reliable in terms of that system, and that the collision warning system needed to exist on the motorbike itself. So we spent three years trying to figure out how to make how to integrate, you know, radars, cameras, lidars, processing units, interfaces to the rider, you know, that are that are highly reliable, one hundred percent reliable. The, the, the interface to the rider has to be. Um, unintrusive and undistracting to the rider. If you're going to deliver, deliver a collision warning to a motorcyclist, the last thing you want to do is increase the distraction. Um, and so all of that, uh, after, after many iterations, we found how well they worked on our prototype motorbikes that we were grafting the system onto. We realized that really the only way forward was you're going to have to build the whole motorbike. Um, because the system was, was the, the components and the weight and the cost was large enough and invasive enough that you couldn't just add it onto an existing motorbike and have a reliable collision warning system. Um, and, and so that was like a real, you know, face the truth music. Are we, am I really doing this again? Am I really going to start another electric vehicle company? And we know the, how that went. Um, <clears throat> um, and then if you're going to start an electric vehicle company, I'm not going to do it wrong this time, the way I did with Rev. And so at this point, it's 2018, 2019 or something. And we now have time in our rearview mirror. Tesla is obviously super successful by 2019. And, and what did they do right? Well, they, they did something that 200 electric car brands did not do right before Tesla. There were 200 different types of electric cars in the last 20 years before Tesla started. And, and none of them exist today. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Nobody actually wants an electric car. Absolutely no one says, I have to have my car electric. What they care about is that the car's better than whatever they have in the driveway because nobody's trading down to save the world. Nobody. Well, there's a few, but it's such a small number. You can't build a car company on that. So really forget about making an electric car, make a better car. And that's what Tesla did that no others did. They made it go farther, faster, better acceleration, safer, sexier, whatever matters to you, whatever you know, boxes you need to check, Tesla's more or less got it, which is why they now have the best selling car in the world. Um, and so all the electric motorcycle companies before Damon are making the same mistake. They're making a bike that's inferior to any of the nine motorcycles in my garage. All nine motorbikes I have in my garage are gas. And I'm an electric car guy since 2008, but I won't buy an electric motorbike because they suck. So, you know, that's an ex that, in the motorcycle world, that's an even higher bar to achieve than in the car world because you have, you have 95% less mass. That's, that needs to have three times the power. Our motorcycle has three times the power per pound of weight than a, than a Tesla 3 performance. That's, that's the bar. And that's the bar of a gas motorcycle. A top-of-the-line gas motorbike has that kind of performance. And, and so that kind of energy density and power density and lightweightness and sex appeal and safety systems and all of that has never been delivered in a motorcycle before. 
But if you can do that, then you're going to, you're going to define the future. People are going to go towards that vehicle because it's better than what they own, no matter what it is that they own. Um, and, and that's what we want. We want everybody to trade up from a medium performance bike or a high performance bike or a low performance bike to whatever's better and cleaning the environment and safer at the same time. So that's kind of how we got to that place. So the, the, the base of customers, you know, we have like 15,000 people waiting for a test ride and we have almost 3,500 orders for the bike, um, is, is created like this groundswell evangelism amongst motorcyclists that, um, well, it's never been done before. No one's seen, you know, that many orders for a product that has yet to, you know, be realized into the world. And what's cool is that your your extensive experience in this vertical has primed you for this. The types of contracts that you've led and delivered upon. I, I mean, I, this is this is starting to make sense as the story unfolds and how you got to where you are now. And I'm not surprised that there's support for this because I do know that again. And I think I mentioned this earlier, a lot of people had been clamoring, leading companies like Tesla's and what have you. Hey, are you ever going to make something like this? And no one wanted to touch it. They were like, nah. But you yeah. saw that. Not only are you an enthusiast yourself, but you also know exactly how to solve this problem. And I'm glad that it wasn't one of those, hey, look, there's a because there's a place and a time for having a moral high ground. But that doesn't create a sustainable business. Often it doesn't. Right. Right? And that and you might as well start a nonprofit. And even then, in order to actually solve a problem, it can't generally generally it can't be a nonprofit because then there's a lot of things that you get limited by as opposed to oh, going private, like- right? When you go private, you can actually do a lot of things, or there's an alternative to that. And I'm curious, what does that look like as the future of of this product comes along? Are you going to go public and things of that nature? Did I, did my notes sort of have something like that laying around? Yeah, there? yeah, you 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 nailed it. I mean, you know, when you when you take on investors, and we've got I don't know a couple hundred of them. You know, boy, I can talk a lot about this subject. <laughs> Maybe this isn't the right podcast for it, but you know, it's one thing to start your own business. It's another thing to start your own business with somebody else's money. It is, it is such a line of demarcation, uh, if you will. Um, and, and when you do take other people's money, even if it's one person's money besides your own, you, you are making such an important commitment to them. Um, I really can't stress it enough. Um, how much it matters that you take that as frankly, your number one customer is your shareholder. Um, you know, your, your customers of your product customers serve the shareholder at the end of the day. Um, and your obligation to them is extraordinary. You know, a lot of people start businesses with friends and family money. Oh my God, does that ever, can that ever cause? It hasn't for me, thankfully. I have taken family money, but it can cause a pretty amazing um, amount of, you know, change in the family dynamic if you're taking fa- friends and family money. Um, when you take a lot of shareholder money, you have a whole new kind of obligation to one day create a, a liquidity event, you know, re- return on investment. Uh, doesn't always work out. Probably vast majority of the time, it doesn't work out. Um, you you are always asked, you know, what's the way you're going to create liquidity for your shareholders? Are you going to get bought? Um, are you going to go public? I've been pretty adamant from day one, we're not going to be bought. Uh, there have been far too many companies in the auto industry whose technologies or products get shelved after they get bought from a major OEM. Um, they get integrated or they have the good intention of integrating that whiz bang technology into that line of Ford cars or whatever brand it is, I'm just picking Ford, not, not picking on Ford. Um, uh, and, and, you know, those good intentions and these, these automotive industries, automotive companies are massive machines, very difficult to actually 
buy something and then actually integrate it into their their product line um, in any reasonable time frame. And by then the world has changed and the product needs to change and all that. So, you know, I've been pretty adamant that that our liquidity event is a, is a go public transaction. Um, actually, uh, two days ago, three days ago, we announced that we're going to be going public on the NASDAQ. Um, and as much as it's super important to the shareholders, uh, there's actually a, another another dynamic. There are a lot of people who missed out on owning Tesla and who you know, wish that that money they spent on a Tesla car, maybe they spent on Tesla stock instead in 2012 because they would have had a 4,000x return. That's the, if you had bought at the beginning and you were selling in the last 12 months, your return is upwards of 4,000x in Tesla, which is pretty, pretty nutty, obviously. And I don't expect we're to be worth a trillion dollars, um, but I think we're going to be worth a hell of a lot. And so we're, we're going public. Um, the other thing that's pretty, pretty darn important about going public on the NASDAQ is, is, is the, the future shareholders. And there's as much excitement from the motorcycle community to own our product as there is for them to own our stock. And not just because of that, that Tesla analogy that I drew, um, but because motorcyclists are a, a pretty special breed of people. Like I've been in the snowboard industry, which is pretty evangelistic. You know, it's, it's quite a religion, you know, distinct from skiing or, or surfing, which draws its roots from and distinct from golf, obviously, and lots of things. Um, but you know, the, the, uh, the, the kind of evangelism and religiousness that exists among motorcyclists is on a whole other level. It's, you know, it doesn't exist at all in cars, except for in little niche pockets of, you know, Ferrari lovers that go on Ferrari drives on the weekend. Motorcycling is, is its own religion in a whole other way. And it, it's inclusive of dirt biking and touring and the Hell's Angel kind of cruising look and feel and all of that. Um, that we all have the same thing in common, no matter what kind of niche of riding we do. Um, and, and the and so they've all dreamed about for many, everybody, I don't know anybody who rides a motorbike who didn't dream of owning their own motorcycle company in one way, shape or form. And that's why there've been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of motorcycle startups over the last hundred years. Few have made it probably the same average of all startups. Um, but there've been so many that have come and gone and, so the opportunity to own a piece of something that represents the future for them, because everybody wants to know where the future of motorcycling is going, while simultaneously kind of scratching that itch without having to build the whole company yourself, and most people don't have the means or the ability to do that, um, I think is going to be really special for us. I think our stock is going to be as popular or more so, at least uh, even than our, uh, than our product itself. Yeah, I think there's a... a definite need and you know i used to work so I, years ago i'm talking years ago uh when i was like 18 17 uh, some, something like that i had actually landed a job as a security guard at a movie studio and, and one of the people that was running the whole shift this is a long time ago ran a bike and his name was reyes right and that's just who he was and he always had his, his fit on and he would show me uh, on the weekend just like how much love there is between the community themselves, how they share notes, trade notes. And, you know, when people are interacting with each other on that level about products and about a vertical, that's a market if you ever saw one, totally. right? That, that is a true market, not even market segment. That is just a market. So to, yeah. know, to know that you're going to be creating the technologies that are leading the way at Damon for, for uh, a community like that, there's so much to that. And especially when, you, and this is why I was so glad we went into your background early on in this conversation, because it really exhibits like who's at the helm of this, right? Who's at the helm of leading this charge 
and and what victories do they lay claim to to mm-hmm. to be able to substantiate their vision right you've worked with big contracts you know you've seen the rise and fall of a, of a product that you've developed and if there's anything i've learned from the over 2000 interviews i've done is entrepreneurs have respect for someone who has attempted something and it didn't go exactly the way they intended to begin with because now you're wiser for that, right? It never goes the way you intended. <laughs> right, right. And you're wiser for that and people understand, okay, this is not a test. This is not a joke. You know exactly what you're trying to accomplish and you understand the inherent risks, which makes you a better steward totally. of, people's, of people's money. And so for me, that's why I'm really excited about the entire if you look at the entire idea of the company, the leadership, and the overall mission, it starts to coalesce into something that really does look exciting. And mm-hmm. so for me, I've got to know, like, when do you have any, can you share any, I know that that can be a very, uh, you know, uh, difficult line to tread. Can you share any details about when people can get involved and, in, you know, buying stock and things of that nature and get all that? Actually, um, um, uh, legally speaking, we can't. Understood. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, I love SEC that. SEC has a pretty hard line about that, so yeah. no, we can't. We can't share anything about the future at this time. We're in what's called a quiet period. So, um, uh, but you can, you know, look up our announcements on on the internet. I was going to say our, our plans to join the Nasdaq, um, which are uh, you know out there now in the in the public sphere. Um, and and yeah, no, that's that's going to be you know a really exciting thing for us. I mean, it doesn't take forever, so. You know, anybody who follows how companies go public understand the timelines are, are pretty short um, and uh, should be should be really exciting. You know, the 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 the, the motorcyclist out there, they can they can now, you know, not just put their money into the into the product they believe in, but they can put their money into the company that they believe in. And not everybody's going to believe in Damon. We definitely have lots of, of riders out there who who think that. Uh, you know, motorcycles should still have gears and still make lots of noise. And ours does actually make a pretty fair amount of noise. Um, but, you know, there's the, there's the purists and, and I, I'm, I'm with the purists. Like I got nine motorbikes and I'm not selling one of them. Uh, I'm still going to take my, my Aprilia to the racetrack on weekends. And, uh, and I'm, but I'm also going to ride an electric one. And so you can have both. And a lot of motorcyclists own more than one bike. That's how fanatical we get. Um, and, and serving that group of people is going to be the most exciting thing in the world. Because they're just, they're just awesome. Like you said, like, you know, we, we get up on our bikes and we go for a ride on a, you know, after work and we, we meet up at the church and there's like 400 riders there and everybody's spending more time socializing than they are riding. And it's, it's just a place to belong. You know, it's a, a very dichotomous community because we're hyper social off the bike. You get on the bike and you're entirely alone. You know, you're inside your helmet and it's quiet in there and you can't talk to any of the 200 bikes in front of you or behind you for an hour or wherever, however long it is you're riding and you get to your destination and everybody's built up so much stuff to say from being stuck in their helmet for an hour by themselves that it's like a cacophony of birds on a wire. Everybody's drinking back tons of coffee and chatting away and being social again and then bang, you're, you're, up, you're on your own again on the bike. So it's a very strange social experience, but it's a, it's a special thing. And that, and that, that fanaticism, um, you know, it extends to the brands whether you're a lover of MV Agusta or Yamaha or Ducati or whatever the brand is you love, everybody's looking for how to make their brand and their motorcycle and a unique expression of them. People dress up their motorbikes way more than they ever dress up cars to look 100%. one of us. hundred yeah, percent. So. And that's yeah. the whole thing is that it can be individualized in that way. That's what's so totally. exciting about this. Uh, do you have any, 
dream partnerships uh, that you'd like to share maybe for the future of like what Damon is doing? Do you, do you see any champions in particular that you were like, you know, it'd be really cool if we got this person to be on board with us or what have you. Can you share any of that? Because I imagine that's part of the marketing process as we, well. We've got some pretty exciting ambassadors coming up that you're going to be hearing about. Also can't share it. I get it. I get it, man. I can't share it. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't I can't take away their 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 their, you know, their fame and their uh, you know, added added shine that they're going to bring to Damon. So, but there's going to be some pretty exciting par- partnerships with some ambassadors. Um, we're working on some exciting partnerships with some uh, you know, other brands that are going to be really really powerful to the, you know, the extension of of Damon and uh, and of their brand as well. Um, so yeah, there's some, some pretty cool stuff in the works that you'll be hearing about over the you know months and years ahead. Um, but yeah, I can't I can't announce anything here today, unfortunately. No worries, no worries. I'm rise out I, on Damon motorcycles. I was gonna say when I ask those questions, it really is to bring the point home that like you know people have to keep in mind you have a career uh, history in extreme sports. You know what I mean? You have a career history in major contracts. The things that you've done and where you've decided to come to today. It's all the reason people should be following you on every channel they possibly can to find out where things are going, because that really is the implication behind this conversation today. And that's, that's, I'm going to leave it at that. So now that we've said that, I do want to roll out the red carpet. Is there anywhere in particular a channel or a website that you'd want people who are listening to go and visit? Yeah. Well, we, uh, we don't get a lot of traction on Twitter for some reason, but we're on Twitter at Damon Motorcycle. Uh, Instagram is definitely our number one channel. I mean, we've had, we've, we've seen 74% of all of our orders have been generated off of Instagram. Uh, so Damon motorcycles on Instagram, D A M O N motorcycles. Uh, of course you can hit our website and check out the product and get a feel for it and, and, you know, tell us if you like it. Uh, and, uh, and I'm at Jay Jarreau. And do you, do you do test drives or anything like that for anything as uh, so people can see what, what it looks like, what it feels like? Yeah, so you can go to the website and uh, I think on the Instagram page, you can sign up for a test ride and get on the waiting list for test ride. And then you'll be on the newsletter list for the tour. Um, and we'll be announcing to those people first when we're, well, actually, we'll be announcing to the people who have an order first. You can place an order for a Damon bike for it with a $100 deposit uh, and hold your place in line. Uh, it's a totally refundable, you know, 100 buck deposit so that you've got a spot in line in the, in the production line as we roll out that information. And we'll be rolling out information about test rides, um, probably up and down the west and east coasts of USA first. Um, all of our orders seem to really um, um, aggregate in California, Florida, Texas. So that's where we have the, the, the bulk of our reservation holders, as you can probably imagine. Uh, yeah, so check those out and, uh, and you can get notified that way. That's exciting stuff, man. Um, I'm not surprised. I'm very happy for you and the team. As a whole, I imagine, you know, as a leader, knowing that you're, you're bringing along a team that it just feels great to come to the office every day or to meet up through, you know, if you're doing remote work or what have you at the company, there's probably just this incredible morale going on about what's happening. Uh, are you happy and excited for the team as well? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And we've got, we've got, um, you know, 50 some odd people, the bulk of them in Vancouver, Canada and, uh, a, a chunk down in, in San Rafael, California. Um, and we do our battery development in California. All of our, our finished vehicle testing happens in California. You can probably understand why roads are dry compared to Vancouver. Uh, <laughs> and then we've got some people in Germany, France, Colombia. Yeah. Some remote workers as well. Um, but yeah, the, you know, not everybody's a motorcycle rider in the company, probably half, which is actually a, a very, very high percentage, probably half of them are motorcycle riders. And those that aren't 
just love what we're doing. They love the mission. They love that it gives them a sense of purpose. I think that pushes our people harder than anything else. Um, people, people join Damon because they feel like they're really, they're really part of the future. And I know maybe that sounds trite or cheesy, but it's absolutely alive and real within every one of our employees who just really love that they're creating something that matters. Uh, because, you know, almost everybody I've met has, knows somebody that's been injured or killed on a motorbike. And motorcycles are here to stay. They, you know, they, they outnumber drivers around the world. They're not going anywhere. It's an economic necessity for 16 mega cities worldwide. Uh, and many other places, you know, they use them for A to B, even if it's not an economic necessity. Um, and, and so we've just got to make them better. We've got to make them safer. we got to make them cleaner. And, and everybody really relates to that. So it is a powerful motivator for sure. Again, I can't stress enough for people to look you up on all the social channels. Let's get your Twitter popping. Anybody who's listening, let's jump on in there and make that happen. And IG, it makes total sense. It's one of those visual mediums. And totally. I've seen enough motorcycle videos to know the why they, why it's <laughs> happening. You know, and again, Damon.com is Damon. one of the easiest ways you could check it out. And Jay Jarreau, man, I can't thank you enough for stopping by. It's been an absolute pleasure. Right on. Thanks so much, Philip.